The views expressed in our episodes are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello, and welcome to Catfish Cops. My name is Brandon Poor, And I am Tony Godwin. Once we tell you where we are right now, to shout out to the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center and the Crimes Against Children Conference. Yes. And so registration is open right now. You can go to caconference.org. Uh, the conference is going to be held between August 9th through December 17th. It's a vir- whole virtual uh, conference. There's- so if you've ever been to the Crimes Conference, you know that in person, it's thousands of people. But yes. I, well, I wanted to say that August 9th through December seventeenth is not normally how it works. No, it's not. Yeah, I'm, see, I'm getting flack from him for cutting him off, but I had to correct <laughs> something. Uh, so <laughs> well, I wasn't this, done this year because it's virtual. You get all of this extra time, yes. to watch the training and see all of these extra things. Go on, Tony. I didn't mean to cut you off. The I'm total sorry. number of hours available during that time period is two hundred and twenty-one point two five. That is like. Incredible. That's incredible. Oh, oh, can I talk again? Okay. Yeah, now that's the, so, that's the point when you can talk. When I end a sentence, then you can begin with the, <laughs> with the next one. That's typically how it's supposed to work. Uh, so what that is going to do is it's going to give you the chance to watch all of these trainings over an extended period of time, which is not normally how it happens when you're at the Crimes Conference Live. Now, you get the experience and the networking there that you don't get in the virtual. So it's all equaling out over, this, over the years. But... Ultimately, this year, still virtual, you'll get to see a lot more opportunities to see those trainings, um, get those continuing education hours, and there's 177 workshops that you can catch. Um, And I know that there are experts every year, but there are just amazing people that are going to be presenting, um, victims who are telling powerful stories, professionals in the field, people there um, that are sharing case studies that so you can, you know, see what you can take from a case study. Each yeah. Time. The upside I think to the virtual for me is like when you go to the conference in person and you're highlighting in your book or whatever you want to go see and you're like, Oh, I want to see this. I want to hear that. I want to go talk about this. And then you are, you're rushing around. And then if you end up getting there and it's like a full house and you're like, Oh man, now I got to try another session, something like that. So there's a lot of logistics when you're there in person, the whole networking part of it is super cool. The fact that people come from all over the world, super cool. Um, I mean, it's an amazing conference, but the virtual side, man, you can see it all. Nikisha, tell us what your title is here at the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. I am the Chief Partner Relations Officer here at DCAC. And what does that mean? That sounds very important. I'm not even going to lie. It sounds very important. It does sound very important. Um, And it is. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what it is. very important. So my role here is to, I manage the partner relations. Okay. What is a partner when you're talking from DCAC's perspective? Does that mean like another 
person or people or what's a partner to DCAC? So we partner with different agencies. So we partner with every law enforcement agency in Dallas County, the DA's office, um, Child Protective Services, Children's Medical. Um, We work. CPS? Yes. Uh, Although we've been corrected. It's now CPI. CPI. Yeah, we have been corrected. This is true. So So those are partner relations. Now, I will say we've worked together for like six, seven years. Yes. You and Tony have worked together for like. Twelve and a half. Twelve at least. So you tell us your background. Well, let's start with before we get to you, Mm -hmm. let's talk about DCAC. So DCAC is a nonprofit organization. We opened our doors in 1991. We are the only agency of its kind in Dallas County that provides a multidisciplinary team um, approach to the prosecution, investigation, and treatment of child abuse cases. So how long has DCAC been in existence? Do you know? Since 1991. Wow. 1991. And so we preach a lot about DCAC being like, it is the creme de la creme, the best at what it does. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's, I mean, really, it's sort of like the flagship in the country for how this this whole process is done, right? Yes. How and long have how long have at this particular building? Like I I know this as the new DCAC, not the old DCAC. Right. So how long have you guys been in this building? So we you moved know? into this building in 2013. Gosh, has it been it, that long already? It's been that long. Wow. It is, and it is a gorgeous facility. One thing that we talk to people about a lot of times is like when you talk about DCAC, I think people think it's kind of a miserable, unhappy place because it's where kids come who have experienced the worst of the worst, but that's not true, right? DCAC is amazing. No, it is. It So the things that we do here can be kind of heavy, yeah. but it is a great place to work. We have a, an, a great team. Yep. And one thing that we've learned over the years is with the, the partner agencies that we work with, we are better together. And yeah. so it just makes the, it makes the job easier when you're able to work with other people and bounce ideas off of each other and laugh. And it's so much larger than the original place down mm-hmm. on Swiss Avenue. The For those who don't know, the original, and that was the original place, right, from 91? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it was an old Victorian uh, home in downtown Dallas off Swiss Avenue. Like, just beautiful, like, architecture. You'd pull up to it, and you'd just think, like, wow, it looks like a museum or something like that. But even that was so kid-friendly, so cool. Uh, but this place, I don't know how much time is bigger it is. It's got to be hundred times bigger. It's and it's, humongous. and it's, it's seriously like a place that houses everything in here. Everybody. We don't have to say how big it is really, but it, it houses a lot of people in under one roof, right? So who all works out of this building? So out of this building, besides DCAC staff, do you want me to talk about the programs that are here? Yeah. 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 So, Let's go into it. Um, as far as programs, we have our forensic interviewers, we have our family advocates, we have our therapy team, we have our MDT coordination team, which is my team. Yes. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. We'll come back to that and discuss what MDT coordination means. We have um, development. We have marketing. I feel like I'm missing people. Well, let's talk about education, education, the, right. the training team. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have law enforcement. We have law enforcement that's housed here. DPD's child abuse unit is housed here. And then we have um, units of CPS that are housed here as well. Okay. As well as our intake DA for Dallas County. Yeah. Is also housed here as well. So the you have a DA in house yes. that basically is here for like offering 
to guide these agencies as they work cases to be a part of that process, right? What yes. their role is that. And then all of those things kind of come together under this umbrella of MDT. Yes, sir. And you are the person overseeing that, that whole process, right? Yes. So let's talk about the MDT. Now, our listeners have, I think, heard a few times what an MDT is, a multidisciplinary team. But I don't know that we've gone into great detail about exactly what that process is. Like, walk us through... That's what this whole series is, DCAC 101, the life of a case at DCAC. So I think our listeners may be um, confused or maybe just don't understand the process. When something comes out about sexual or physical abuse of a child, what happens? How does this whole process work? So let's say that a a report's made at a police department um, and just for sake of argument, because we're here and they're in in the building, DPD gets something and law enforcement gets a report. What is the first steps of the process? So if if law enforcement gets a report and let's say CPS is involved as well, um, what typically happens is my team will read that CPS report. So they're responsible for reading every CPS intake that comes to Dallas County. They determine whether or not it rises to the level of a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. If it rises to the level of, of a criminal offense, then it means it means it meets our criteria here at DCAC. And so their role is to link law enforcement and child protective services together to make sure that they are basically working these cases together. Yeah. Um, and that's the whole premise behind the CAC. Um, right. This particular program started back in CAC, the- meaning Child Advocacy Center. There you go. I just have to make sure they <laughs> yes. understand. But that's not always been the case, right? Where where your team reads right. CPS intakes. So that started in 2015. Yeah. And so one thing that we realized across the state of Texas is that kids were still kind of falling through the cracks. Yeah. And we were kind of getting away from the original goal and point of the CAC. And so... Um, so now, instead of just CPS and law enforcement receiving those uh, CPS intakes, uh-huh. now the CAC also receives those intakes. And so, so some checks and balances are in place just so nothing happens. No kid falls through the cracks, no report gets pushed to the side and right. dismissed. Right. Great. So we just serve as a third set of eyes on those intakes, and we ensure that all the agencies are working collectively. Now, you are not, I guess, you're not a stranger to the process, right? Because you didn't just start at DCAC as the MDT supervisor. You have a background in this, right? I do. So, so tell I us where started, you came from. So prior to working for DCAC, I started as a CPS investigator. Okay. And I did that for all of two years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Which got to be exhausting. It's like dog though. years. It feels like 18 or yes. something. <laughs> and as, I, as a CPS worker, I remember watching my first forensic interview and seeing like, wow, like that's awesome. Like that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and so that's how I made that transition from CPS to to, to DCAC. So, so after was, two years, you grew up. I grew up. Became a forensic interviewer. Right. Became an, it became a forensic interviewer. And I did that for a little over seven years. Yeah. Like I remember you interviewing yeah. in cases of mine. So you've been Me too. an interviewer and a great interviewer. Oh, and then from going to great interviewer to... MDT supervisor? Yes. yes. And now director of? Well, I mean, it's I'm chief, but I'll let you get away with saying director. <laughs> I did, oh, I'm, <laughs> oh, you are chief for sure. You certainly proved that just hey, now. The even bigger plug we give is uh, 
back in the day when you were doing forensic interviews for me on the, when I was a case carrying detective and another forensic interviewer that was in the house was Irish Birch, mm -hmm. who's yeah. now the who's director now the of this place, right? Which yeah. is unbelievable. Is she the director? She is the CEO. So oh, she oh, is. oh I, yeah. I apologize, Irish. I meant CEO, oh, Irish. not director. We like, have called Nikisha a director and not a chief, and we called you a director and not a CEO. We are the worst. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it comes from a good. It comes from a good place. Good place. Know. So you came. You came from the forensic interviewing background. So you have that kind of perspective in looking at how a case progresses. Yes. And then how does that change when you're now? the chief of MDT. What is, what is your role here in that? I mean, besides partner relations and, mm -hmm. and do you still go to MDT meetings or what do you do now? As a matter of fact, I facilitate <laughs> those meetings. Yes, you do. <laughs> so that case comes through, mm -hmm. it's looked at by your team. Yes. And then what happens next? And then my team ensures that that, that child comes in for services. So they get their forensic interview. They, get family advocacy and make sure that they're um, hooked up with therapy services as well. Okay. And so after some of that has happened, usually the FI that um, then the case goes, makes its way to case staffing. Okay. And so basically that is just a round table discussion. Everyone that was involved in that case comes to the table and talks about what they've done. Okay. It's not a time to throw anyone under the bus. We just want to make sure that we're all on the same all on the same page yeah. and that we're doing what we, what we say we're going to do. And that's when we, all of those partners you just named law enforcement, yes. CPI, medical DA's office, yep. therapy, therapy, family, family advocate, advocate. Yeah. forensic interviewers. We're all there. And we kind of go in the, we kind of talk about how, like how the case came in. And so if it started with law enforcement, law enforcement will start us off and talk about how they got the, got the case, what the allegations are. And then the forensic interviewer will talk about the interview. And by the end of it, we know what's, what's happened on that case and what we need to do next. Okay. And so having sat in those meetings before, I can say that those meetings are very thorough and it's a lot of like, okay, who's done this? Who's done that? Mm -hmm. What still needs to be done? Detective, what are you doing? Medical, are you still doing that? You know, that there's a lot mm -hmm. of that. How do you, how, I mean, what's obviously checks and balances is the purpose of that. But what does that change in the way that we're doing those cases now from when you, maybe we used to do them in the first part of that? Why do we need multidisciplinary team format? What's the benefit of that? So there's several benefits of it. One, for the child, so that child isn't doesn't have to tell their story over and over again. So prior to DCAC, that child would have to tell their story to right. all these different agencies and at the end, it would appear as though that child was inconsistent because they may have told CPS one thing, they may have told right. law enforcement nothing. Right. And and so when if, if these cases made it to trial, we were kind of setting our kiddos up for failure. Yeah. And so now, um, the CAC and with it coming with it coming through through our agency, that child only has to tell their story that one time, and so. Law enforcement is there to listen. Child Protective Services is there to listen. And then when we get into that room and we're talking about what's going on, we're all on the same page. Right. And so it just keeps that um, keeps that child from having to tell their story over and over again. But it also ensures that the partner agencies are communicating. Yeah. Because prior to this, those yeah. relationships were non-existent. 
Yeah. And so you had coming from that old school way of thinking is that's how I was brought into Mm -hmm. this arena was that exact way. And there was always some sort of strife or something that, uh, you know, kind of seemed to linger in the air or you can't tell me how to do my job. I'm not telling you how to do your job, all this back and forth. Well, I've said a lot of the worst cases, like the serial killer cases and stuff were allowed to go probably longer than they should have been because of law enforcement, not communicating with other law enforcement. Yeah. And so when we're talking about this, right? Like, yeah, that it, I mean, it was a whole paradigm shift. And, and so I went through that evolution. Like I was originally one of those guys like, well, what do I need to go down there for what the heck I can do that. I can talk to a kid. And, but once you see the dynamic of that and the damage it does, when that kid does tell that story three, four, five, six times, or sadly, when you go to a courtroom and you see it, you know, unfold and, and the, you know, fingers get pointed towards a kid and you're thinking like something's not right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all for the better, this thing, this, we're huge proponents of it at this point. We train on it. We tell everybody, um, you've probably heard we, we preach this format, right? Yes. A lot. But what's the purpose of, of the, I guess, what's the purpose of having a kid go through services? Like I've seen parents, well, we're going to talk about services, mm-hmm. but when we're talking about introducing a family maybe to services, um, I've heard parents and, and people that don't know this process are like, what, what do they need? Like, that, my kid's fine. We're good. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they seem okay. So like, why, why introduce this CAC model into this? Do you know that? Let's talk about the neutrality maybe of CACs. Because I know that I've heard that people are like, well, law enforcement has a stake in this, mm-hmm. and CPS has this stake in it, and the DA's office is doing this. And so what's the CAC bringing to the table that way? So our neutrality, um, especially in that forensic interview, even with for that child, they're able to say like, hey, I don't work for law enforcement because right. a lot of our kiddos are taught, don't talk to police officers. Yep. They sometimes don't want to talk to CPS because they're taught, if you talk to CPS, they're going to remove you. Um we're able to say, hey, we don't work for any of these agencies. We want to make sure that you and your child are okay. Yeah. And so that approach usually helps families to kind of open up. And um, even if at that moment they don't feel like they need services, mm-hmm. Mindy's team, Katrina's team can reach back out to those families later because yeah. that day their whole world is falling apart. Oh, and yeah. They aren't yeah. trying to process sometimes right. needing services. And so we're just able to keep you know contact with that family. And so, I've, oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. I, I was going to add something else. Like if you have something, mine is uh, an offshoot. So. Well, I was going to transition to talking to RFI since oh, we're well, bringing before, that up. Before, so uh, no, wait, we have to bring up one thing. Because I heard a rumor that you don't like crickets. <laughs> is that true? This is true. And we've learned today that maybe microphones are also some <laughs> going to the top of the list. microphones. Huh? So, so if there was a cricket on the microphone, we'd really have some problems right now. I wouldn't be in this room right now. <laughs> well, what did you do? Like, I remember years ago, the cricket invasion of North Texas, where mm-hmm. they would be like piled oh, yeah. up at the doors. Yes. Because there were so many. Yes. What, what did you do? Did I you did just not like, leave my home. You, <laughs> you panicked in fear. You like, invented <laughs> quarantine back in 1999. <laughs> like, I literally freeze when I see one. Oh, wow. And so you also say that you're a little shy. Which yes, can you tell <laughs> but, today? But isn't that kind of counterintuitive to the job that you have, Chief? Oh. It's funny that you bring that oh, up, Oh, now Tony. he knows the title, doesn't <laughs> yeah, he? Yeah, now he knows it. So, and I'll say, like, usually 
by the end of the day, I am super tired because my job takes me out of my, my comfort zone every day. Yeah. Um, I get energy from people, but they also make me real tired. Yeah. <laughs> And so I feel you. <laughs> if you're shy, yeah, I would think like it's it just, draining to yeah, like put yourself is, out there. It is draining, but Hey, we do it every day. Yeah. Well, as you should, now we will transition over to our forensic interviewer component. And so we have the also great privilege of introducing forensic interviewer, f- former forensic interviewer, now a new title. Kimberly Not Skidmore. Chief. Not, Not chief. the chief. Not chief. But what is your title with DCAC? I'm the director of forensic services. Direct. It, it sounds so official that way. Now I. Now this is Kimberly Skidmore. I'm just going to call her Kim because I will not. Yeah, be able to Kimberly say makes Kimberly. me feel like I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but I have known Kim since I started. Well, Kim and Keisha were both like part of the beginning teams and Irish was like running the MDT when I first came on board. So yeah, we've been in it for a few years, haven't we? We have. I I will say I'm also a recovering CPI worker (laughs) (laughs) and you made it too. I only made it one. So wow. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) so let's talk about your background then let's go into it. One year at CP, uh, CPS. It was CPS when I was there. So We'll just okay. call it CPS. But you did something before you went to CPS, right? Yes. Prior to CPS, I, w- I actually started my career a little bit different than most forensic interviewers. Most forensic interviewers kind of go from CPI to forensic interviewing. I was lucky enough out of college to become a forensic interviewer at a very small county. So okay. I worked in, I'll give a shout out, Fannin County. Yeah, Fannin County. Nice. Anyone listening in Fannin County remember Kim? I mean, I that was a long time a ago. Long time ago. <laughs> so, but you if, went. If you do, it's time where for you is Fannin County? Where is it? It is up. Uh, Bonham is like the big. Oh, city. Oh, okay, Bonham. I know yeah. the Bonham big city of Bonham. The big city. So you went straight into it. How different is it then? To well, you. I mean, first of all, you came into forensic interviewing pretty young then right out of college right very young yeah and with so with most people you said come from the cps background before that so it gives them a little taste of like casework and and basically being in this field what was it like to come straight out of college and what what were you thinking so in in college i worked at a domestic violence shelter so i had a little taste and then i was lucky enough that i interviewed with a the executive director of the uh, CAC I worked at at the time was an alumni from the school that I had just graduated from. That never hurts. And so, yeah. So, you know, that didn't hurt at all. And then I didn't have to move. I stayed in the same town that my school was in. And okay. Yeah. So I had a little taste of it with domestic violence in college, but. And then what made you decide I'm leaving FI, I'm going to CPS. It was more of like a, I wanted to move out of the small town okay. and move to Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> get, but know. a year in Careful CPS, what you ask for. like yeah. a year in CPS, both of you can say it, it's, it's grueling, right? Yeah. I think CPS is one of those jobs, like a lot of them where your supervisor can make or break it. You know, yeah. like if you have a supportive supervisor, then you can yeah. make it. And I was lucky enough to have a good one. Yeah. But you've got a big caseload yes. working these terribly difficult cases and having to move quickly, right? Because you guys are on a time frame that we're not always. When I was housed here at DCAC, and so the CPS units here at DCAC handle the cases that DCAC is handling. Okay. And so they're handling the cases that rise to a criminal level. So they're the ones that are working with law enforcement. So not every CPS worker like has to do that collaboration from the jump. That yeah. Some of them get to, they get to, some of them have to respond to maybe dirty houses or right. drug cases and stuff like that. Some negligence not, things. Yeah. Not a lot of those cases are coming through DCAC. So we have talked about that. The CPS agent or the CPS investigator, CPI investigators here, they work 
the more serious cases, right? So they're used to being in and around working the cases of what serious bodily injury and death and sexual abuse and sexual abuse. Yeah. So how did you transition back to forensic interviewing? Yeah. I, I mean, I worked at DCAC and honestly, when the interviewer, when one of their forensic interviewers resigned, my CPS supervisor called me that day and she was like, I'm going to lose you, huh? And I was like, the writing is on the wall. Yes, you are. And so that was kind of my plan. And my supervisor was supportive and knew that going into it. Yeah. And it just happened quicker than I had expected. Okay. So that case comes from Keisha's team. Yes. They've looked at that. Where's the next step? The next step would be getting that kiddo in a room with one of my team and allowing them to tell their story to us. So talk to us about that. Why forensic interviewing? What is forensic interviewing? And I know they've heard from other forensic interviewers on our episodes before, but DCAC is its own animal out here, right? You guys are like, like we said earlier, you are the best of the best. And so you do it differently than other agencies, I think sometimes, and not forensic interviewing, but the process and the people are different. What's your, what's the process? So uh, law enforcement would call and schedule a forensic interview. And so most of the time, it's kind of changed in the last couple of years, but it used to be and still somewhat is that's the kiddo's first time coming in the building is for a forensic interview. Okay. And so they come in, um, the interviewer will sit down with law enforcement and kind of say, what do you got? And we'll chat about what details they have so far, what they know about the case. Of course, we want CPI there if they're involved on the case. And then the interviewer will go up and introduce themselves and take the kiddo back to a forensic interview room. So this is the first introduction a child has to DCAC and the world that they're about to become a part of through this process. What does that look like when you go up and introduce yourself to a family? um, Are you like, let's go? Or are you kind of explaining some of it? Um, What does it look like with you have one parent or maybe the other parents been accused of this or is part of this as the suspect? What does all of that look like as an FI? We um, only allow the non-offending caregiver in the building. And so alleged perpetrators don't, aren't allowed in the front of the building. Um, That's basically just, we know that kids are more likely to tell things when we're not, when they know that we're not going to take them back to the person that hurt them. Right. So when law enforcement is planning the kiddo coming in, or if CPS is doing that, they'll talk to the family or they'll talk to each other and kind of plan how that works. So a kiddo is brought in, hopefully by a non-offending caregiver. Okay. Um, but let's talk just quickly. Like, sure. where does the child go? Like, from the lens of looking through the eyes of a child, when they come in this building, which could be very intimidating, it's big and everything, but it's very nice. So, you know, it's not off-putting at all. But where do they go? Do they have a, you have a room where they can – and what can they do while they're waiting for that intro? So in non-COVID times, yeah. we, um, <laughs> right. we do have a forensic interview waiting room. That has a television. It's much like a kiddo's doctor's office waiting room. Um, Our advocate team is a lot of times in there playing and engaging with those kids and making them feel comfortable as they come in. Yeah. Like I remember at the old Swiss Avenue, there was a a stuffed bear the size of Brandon that used to sit there. Like as soon as they walked in and there was like all these toys and books and everything, it's, I'm assuming transitioned over here the same way. Yes. It's very, it's designed to be kid friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. But that that bear's older, so now it's gained a little, so it's like the size of Tony. (laughs) It was, yeah, it could be me. (laughs) Sorry, that was rude. That was, that was, I'll cut it out. Don't worry. (laughs) 
So what? Okay, so let's go back to the kid comes back to this room. Yes. And then, you know, they're grilled under a light for two hours. and Yeah, I mean, we walk in like flipping tables and tell them <laughs> that they better tell us what's going No, 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 no. Um, they are sitting, again, in non-COVID times, we're sitting closely with them with the table. Um, the benefit of having a forensic interviewer is, again, like Keisha kind of touched on that, we don't have a dog in this fight, really. Like, I get to be a neutral, unbiased fact finder. Yeah. I don't arrest people. I don't take people's kids away. And I can tell the kiddo that. Um, and so we ask, you know, open-ended non-leading questions that are also developmentally appropriate to try to get the kid's story in their own words. And what does it take to be a forensic interviewer in the first place? Since you've come from doing it, now you're overseeing it. Let's talk about what is a forensic interviewer? What's the skill set? What's the purpose of why, why can't Tony and I talk to these kids about this outcry better than someone else? Sure. Um, we do a lot of training on child development. We all go through the same training for CACs of Texas. So every Children's Advocacy Center in Texas is a member of um, Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas, which sounds very redundant now that I'm saying it. Um, but we're accredited through them. And so we get all of our training through them. And so every interviewer in the state of Texas is trained in the same protocol, the same way to do interviews. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a step-by-step list. There's, of course, style and skill that go into that. Um, but yeah, we're just trained in, again, just getting the narrative from that kiddo and child development. What's the time frame Like how long does it take? Like if somebody just comes on as a new hire or maybe they've come from CPI or wherever, uh, but they, you think it's a good fit. Is this like a, they can get it down in a month. They can learn how to do this or this sort of evolves over a longer period of time. Um, a lot of it is on the job training. So I would say brand new, no interviewing experience. It would probably be about three to four months before okay. they were totally up and running. But you're also doing like ongoing training, right? And Absolutely. Talk about peer review because I hear that a lot. What is peer review? Yeah. So in our field, we, every Friday, we are lucky enough to have a big interview team here at DCAC. So we have eight full-time interviewers, um, nine or 10, including myself and my boss, and I'm sorry, actually seven full-time interviewers because we have a direct supervisor. Um, but we all get to sit down at a table and it's so important to make sure that you're still doing best practices. I've been do, here at DCAC for going on eight years and I do less and less interviews because of just other responsibilities. And so it's still important to make sure that when I'm in that interview room, I'm doing the right thing and I'm you know, staying to best practices and not having some drift from that. And so we'll sit around at a table and watch each other's interviews and really you know, get down to nitty gritty of why'd you ask it that way? You know, I, I, I saw you do this. I think you could have done this. Mm -hmm. And so even when we're interviewing, like interviewing four candidates to become forensic interviewers here at DCAC, that's something that we talk about in that interview process. Like you have to have some pretty thick skin and people are, all of our interviews are recorded. Detectives are watching you. We're watching. I can come out of an interview if I'm struggling with a kid and don't necessarily know which way to go and I'll like stand at the end of the hallway and be like, "Hey, is anybody watching this? I oh. need some help." Wow! Like, so you've got you've got eyes of experts there, yes. watching as you do it. Yeah, for sure. Which has got to be a little bit daunting, say. I mean, when you first get in the field, I think it can be, and then it becomes exciting. Okay. Or it should become exciting, and maybe if it right. doesn't become exciting, maybe. But I mean, like, start the food truck. There's a yeah. lot of training because you guys are experts yes. in questions and how to ask questions and what kids can answer what like talk about that how does the kids age and development play into your deciding what questions to ask 
Yeah. I mean, if anybody has ever been around a preschooler and you ask them how many times something happened, they probably say a million. Okay. Or if you ask them, Hey, when did something happen? They might say yesterday or tomorrow. So we don't want to ask kids questions that are basically setting them up to fail right? because based on their development, they can't answer them. Now, when you say that you're not just because the cop in me goes, well, does that mean that you're asking questions that are going to get an answer that you want out of them? I don't know. I don't understand your question. Well, okay. That's, <laughs> oh gosh. Very forensic interviewer answer of you. <laughs> no, I mean like, okay. So when you say, if I, if I'm setting a kid up to fail by asking a question that they can't answer, does that mean that you're only going to ask questions that you know the answer to, and you're going to try and get that answer out of them? Like, Hey, did this happen with this person? Are you asking that question that way? No. So we're only using information they've already provided. Okay. So that's what non-leading means. So non-leading is a question that, um, or a leading question has the answer in the question. So that would be using prompts or saying, Hey, uncle bad guy touched you, right? Like okay. that would be an example right. of a leading question. And so those are the questions that we're trained definitely not to use. So if I said I'm through, I'm seven years old, Tony is nine or 10. Tony, something's coming. Tony hit me in the face and I'm now in a forensic interview about Tony hitting me in the face. That could happen. Well, he probably has already. I'm waiting for it. What would you ask me to make it a non-leading question? Would you say Tony hit you in the face, right? That's what you just said. It would be a leading question. So give us an example of how you would ask it as a forensic interviewer. Oh, my first question would probably be, tell me how come you came here today? Okay. Tell me what's been going on. Well, Tony hit me in the face. Well, tell me all about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's so simple, right? That sounds so easy. And I'm sure listeners are going to be like, well, that doesn't sound like it needs training for you to be like, tell me. Yeah. But then when you mix in trauma and you mix in <laughs> chronic abuse and multiple incidents and all of that. Yeah. Can, you can get in the weeds yeah, really fast. Complicated. I think okay. the other thing to highlight is the, the reason we want you guys to do these for us is because you are the experts and because you're going to go to court and you're going to be on the stand and testifying. And, and so like, I try to, I try to transition that to the new officers we train in the Academy or new detectives that come in is like, you already got enough on your plate. Like you're going to be up there getting grilled about everything else that you did. Why do you want to add one more component? Let them do their job. They know what they're doing. They're going to get you what you want. And it's not like you don't even communicate. You come back and communicate with the officer or CPI or whoever's there watching the interview as well. So there's a whole dialogue, right? So we take a break and the... So we go through what we call a detail gathering phase and we gather all the details. Before we get to that, I want to learn the process all the oh. way through. But I do want to ask this real quick because we're going to have to wrap this this episode up and come back and hear the whole process of the FI. But cops ask leading questions, right? Yes. Is that a self-proving <laughs> question? So I do sometimes. Is there a reason why <laughs> you like that? I made sure it was a leading way to say it. Is there's a reason why a forensic interviewer, you said, doesn't have a dog in this fight. And so police officers don't question kids anymore, right? That's not always been the case. That has not. What do you see when we're talking about cases going to court? Now that you're the, the director of it, you probably see the difference in cases and, and things like that. How has that change brought, a, brought about differences in case, cases? Yeah, we spend a lot of time testifying, my team and I. And the reason that we don't want cops necessarily asking all of those questions in the field is because we want 
And in a perfect world, we would be the outcry witness in a case. And so the outcry witness in a, is a, in a case is the only person besides the victim, if the victim is under the age of 14, that's able to go on the stand and say, this is what the kid told me. These are the details of what happened. And we're asking such detailed questions that we want that outcry witness to be us. And okay. maybe and maybe not, you know, the cop that's asking them questions in the field. I, you know, I sometimes teach law enforcement and I definitely tell them it's not that this isn't like a... For, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but this isn't like a pissing match. Like, I don't think that I'm necessarily better at my job than you are at your job or anything like that. It's just that, and I always explain it like this, like if you are, if you go to your general practitioner and they say, hey, there's something going on with your heart, they're going to send you to a cardiologist, right? They're going to send you to someone that specializes in this. This is all they do. It's the same for us. Like we specialize in this. This is all we do is talk to kids about this kind of stuff. Why wouldn't you want that person doing that? And then you go testify about it. And so that does take the responsibility off of us. It also makes us someone that's just there to corroborate what's said, right? We don't have to worry about how we're asking those questions. Because I guarantee if we leave it up to a police officer to ask the questions, it's going to come out more leading because we just, that's how we do. I mean, there's a little bit of ego with a lot of cops anyway, right? (laughs) I wasn't saying that. I wasn't throwing anyone under the bus. I'm just saying, you know, like, (laughs) that's kind of the way it is. Like the analogy I give them, I'm like, I've been brushing my teeth for 53 years. Doesn't mean I'm a dentist, right? I still go to the dentist because, duh, why don't you use the resources you have? It's a very simple process, but it's way different now than it was before. Way different. So with that, we have to wrap up because we are out of time today, but we will come back and continue speaking with the staff of DCAC, and we will pick back up talking about the forensic interview process. We will talk to you soon.